Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Griselda, and this week we're bringing you two literary heavyweights, Peter Carey and J.M. Kotsia. The twice Booker Prize winner, Peter Carey, recently published a new novel which deals with Australia's difficult colonial history. And later, we've got a new short story written and read by another writer who's also won two Booker Prizes and a Nobel, J.M. Kotsia. The Australian novelist Peter Carey probably needs little introduction. He's most famous for his novels The True History of the Kelly Gang, Oscar and Lucinda, and Parrot and Olivier in America. And his new book, A Long Way From Home, deals with some of the same themes, the self-mythologising of a, inverted commas, new country, like Australia. But unlike those books, it's not just about a kind of recent mythology, a recent history, a recent peoples, but also the deep history of the indigenous population of Australia. It's about land and maps and maps of the mind and how one imagination of one people can be grafted onto another. It starts off in a similar vein to some of his other books. It has a funny kind of picaresque journey quality. It's about three people travelling around Australia on a kind of adventure. But for me, at least, halfway through the book, it turns into something really quite different. It becomes a different sort of novel. And as I said, this is the first time that Peter Gary has really, in a schematic way, dealt with Aboriginal histories. I thought it was a fascinating book. I've been enjoying his book since I was a teenager, and it was a real pleasure to meet Peter Carey when he came into the FT. So Bacchus Marsh, the small town near Melbourne where the new book is set, I first thought was a made-up place because it has this great name, Mm. um, and then read that it is, in fact, the place where you grew up in the 40s and 50s. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about what it was like? Maybe an interesting thing about Bacchus Marsh is to forget all about the god of wine. Uh, <laughs> although you might remember that Bacchus Marsh has seven pubs, but to think that a English captain called Captain Bacchus, who must have could not have been a very high-status military officer because he wouldn't have been in Australia anyway, he retired and took land at Bacchus Marsh and he built a manor house. So it's a bit of good Australian self-invention. <laughs> it's a nice name. It's a great name. It it does sound strange and maybe it's a little romantic. It was a pretty little town. The town people predominantly working class, lower middle class, a lot of farmers. My parents had a GM dealership, as to the characters in the book. book. Mm -hmm. I think particularly of my mother, who would sit in the spare parts department, also like where people came to pay bills and things like that, sitting up at a high counter and dealing with men who continually came in thinking she would know nothing. People wanted to say, I want to see the manager. I am the manager. They wouldn't believe her. And, <laughs> and, and, and mechanics, you know, wanting a particular part. And uh, she always, she really had to always contradict them to know the, the, the correct number for the part, which they didn't know. Her life was a constant battle with men who thought she was an idiot. Although the character in my book, the woman who's, who owns a car dealership together with her husband, is not in any way like my mother. Is there something of her in but, there? But, but there's something. I think there's a there's a sense of her her battle with the, the patriarchy, if you like, in Australia in the fifties. She's formed by that, and the character to me isn't drawn from anyone, but it was re- really you know, instinctively and naturally produced. I knew who she was. The thing that strikes me is that this is, in some sense, a story of three people going on an adventure. The narrative is constructed around this journey. Mm. 
And I'm interested in something that you've said about the book, which is that it's made of two sets of maps. Yes, it is. Will you tell me, what does that mean? With a novel, you really do need a way to get in the door, no matter what you think you want to write about. Thinking about the issues of who owns the land and what happened in order that I should have my life in Australia. I was thinking about this round Australia race. And I looked at the old newsreel footage... And I see the so this is cars. The, the Red X trial. Yeah, it's called the Red X trial. I just wonder. I mean, lots of people listening won't know what that what that is exactly. Well, Red X was a, a motor oil additive, and so it was a sponsored race. The curious result of it: no one in Australia ever knew what Red X was, but it was the most famous event of all time. It was, a, you know, it was a, a race that was not a race that went 9,600 miles, about 250 cars, standard production cars, like you would go to the shops in or go to work, and going, oh, well, often, you know, really nightmare conditions that would really destroy a car. Mm. And the whole of the country was engaged with this. I was interested in that sentimentally because I remembered it. Looking at newsreel footage and looking at these cars ploughing through the outback, thinking that they really didn't know where they were. We didn't know where we were. It was probably not until Bruce Chatwin, a pom, <laughs> wrote about the song lines, mm. much to the irritation of Australians, I think, that it, that it would be an Englishman <laughs> who would first popularise and write about these narratives of ceremony and religion and ancient, ancient custom. In the time of the Red X trial, no one thought about that. No one really thought about the Indigenous people anyway. So I was thinking these people with their maps and the Red X maps are really quite beautiful and detailed, had no idea really that they were crossing these ancient narratives. They thought that they were, you know, they were like dogs peeing around the boundaries of their territory. And why is it that you hadn't tackled this huge subject, really, this huge Australian subject of the Indigenous population until this point? Well, actually I had. But not a, not, not a, quite in this way. No, it's sort of it's, it is schematically it underlies Illiwaka, the lie that sustains yes, Australia. Yes. Oscar and Lucinda, the Christian stories that destroy the indigenous stories. So at the very base of much of my work, this thing is there. But if you finish the, reading the book, you're not going to think it is. Yes, I'll know that, but nobody else. In about eighty four or eighty five, I heard an Aboriginal activist called Gary Foley speaking to mostly white playwrights in Canberra. And he said, I'd regard it as a great favour. I know you guys want to help, mm -hmm. but it would be really nice if you didn't write about us because we have enough misinformation to deal with anyway. And I, be, I sort of understood what he was talking about, which was sort of the colonisation of the Indigenous imagination with, by white literature. There's also the thing that being typical of people in the south of Australia or southeast of Australia... I hadn't grown up with Aboriginal people. I didn't know anything about Aboriginal culture. There was nothing nothing in my whole experience to, to draw on. But on the other hand, that didn't stop me when I wanted to write about a French aristocrat in, in Parrot and Olivia in America. Somehow there's a fear of getting it wrong when it seems like cultural appropriation. You're quite right. It's much more important. I got to a stage where I thought, I'm 74 now. And I've never done that. And I, and I sort of felt that was sort of shameful, maybe just more ridiculous not to have done it. What had seemed like a reasonable thing to do seemed like timidity. I tell my friends, often with Australians, it wasn't so much I just told them, but I was sort of running a test question. I said, this is what I'm going to do now. And they all looked terribly worried for me. And I think they, they thought looked, you were going to do it wrong or do, yeah, do, do it wrong, wrong and make, yeah. make a total fool of myself. Mm. And also, of course, they, because I've not actually lived in Australia for 25 years, they think I don't know, you know, what, <laughs> you know what the 
tensions are and all of these things. The book is a, a story of white people anyway. It's, it's, it's about being a white Australian. And, of course, you cannot be a white Australian without impinging on the lives of black Australians, mm-hmm. as you cannot be a black Australian without having your life determined and sometimes destroyed by white Australians. So the history is such that you can't have one without the and other. Do you, do you feel like an Australian in New York? Is it You're writing with, with geographical distance. Yeah, I, I absolutely feel, like, a, feel mm. like, like an Australian in New York. I've got two American sons. I'm a foreign dad. And as I like to explain to about how it feels to be in the United States, when, when Americans want to know about Australia, which they tend to like, and they've had a nice time there, and Australians are friendly and superficial. They don't think they're superficial, but we're good at superficial friendship anyway, <laughs> put it that way. Uh, you, do you want to know what our national anthem is? Well, the, what's the song of our heart? It isn't really our national anthem. And it's a song about a homeless man who steals a sheep and then commits suicide rather than go into custody. And that's the song of our heart. So you can put that beside... Yes. (laughs) And that's the song we love. So if you want to think about how different we are from the Star Spangled Banner (laughs) and you want to... So I'm a very foreign person, but I live in New York City, which is filled with people who carry at least two histories and two countries in their hearts. And in that respect, it feels rather comfortable. Did you have a sense of of having to leave in the way that, say, just a few years before mm. Clive James and Jermaine Greer and that sort of that cohort of writers had a sense of having to leave Australia? It was a different time, mm. and they were right, and they did have to. I didn't have to. I was then married to a woman who was in love with the notion of living in New York. I had no particular objection. I thought it might be quite interesting. New York turned out to be weirder and weirder, and the United States, as we as we see every day, gets weirder and weirder. Thinking of this idea of of home and where you make home, I did read that you once lived in a hippie commune. Mm. What was that like? Fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> what a life. I mean, see, you know, friends had come up, and at the beginning, anyway, we had no running water, and there were a lot of blowflies everywhere, and. I'll spare you some of the other details. <laughs> and, and the Queensland police were always out to arrest us and get us for various reasons. But it was a very, very beautiful life. My friends there were, you know, were either on unemployment benefits or were clever and got themselves trained as sugar chemists, which meant they could work in the sugar mill three months of the year and the unemployment people couldn't make them do anything else for the rest of the year. <laughs> so, you know, even then we'd get up early in the morning and it's very hot work in the garden, write for the morning, three or four hours. I was living with a painter. We'd then drive across to the coast, to the beach, <laughs> spend the afternoon at the beach. <laughs> it does sound rather nice. <laughs> then drive up and down look, looking for some nice fish to buy for dinner <laughs> and come and drive back through this beautiful landscape filled with you know, sugar cane and lovely mountains and uh, it was gorgeous. And compared to that, what's your writing day like now? Exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> the idyllic beaches of Manhattan. Yeah, that's the same. Um, well, I live not far from Beach Street, actually. But, um, well, I get up in the morning and I write for three or so hours, have some lunch. I run a creative writing program at Hunter College in New York, which is fortunately very small. So three in fiction, three lovely writers, really, really good have Colin McCann and Taylor Obrecht and I teach fiction to 12 students. It's not overly demanding, but it's demanding enough and we have all the time 
to give to the students without resenting. Now, often in these programs, you find the writers, are, you know, the writers are all geniuses, and why are they wasting their time with these dumb students? You know, we've got the time to teach them, to look after them, and to be thrilled to see them grow and publish. So for three or four months of the year, my afternoons are often concerned with that. You've published a book, sort of every few years mm. since '81. Do you ever feel that you might retire from this? What do you suggest I do? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm the same. You know. <laughs> so the answer is no. It's nice sometimes to think I'm taking a break now. I'm, I'm. I'll work, but I'll work slowly. I'll work, but not under pressure. I'll just read. Or, but in the end, I think I'm actually happiest. The thing that makes me happiest is a good day's work. I mean, I got away with it. A lifetime of playing, almost. <laughs> so I like it. And finally, what's what's next? What can we expect next? What next for Peter Carey? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on a novel. I have about a hundred good pages. As often happens when you go come into a, into a book, you think you know what you're doing, but you you sometimes sort of find the book when you're well well into it. And and this is beginning to feel like a a book like that. Obviously, I'm not going to say what it is. I hardly know what it is myself. Mm-hmm. But I'll be very pleased when I finish publicising this book that I will not be left with that empty feeling is is that all there is I'll be going back to writing and I'll go back and I'll be reminded that that's actually the good part (laughs) you know the good part isn't publishing and the good part isn't even a good review the good part is making stuff up So if you heard our episode recorded at Hay Cartagena, you'll remember The Dog. It's a new short story from J.M. Kutzia's forthcoming collection, Seven Moral Tales. And Kutzia read it in front of a live audience at the festival, an audience which included Alec Russell, my boss and the editor of FT Weekend. And I spoke to Alec for a special episode showcasing the best bits of Hay Cartagena. You can find this episode in our back catalogue or at ft.com slash everything else. In the section of the conversation that we're going to play, Alec and I were discussing the short story. This is a particularly interesting story, I think, and particularly pertinent to the moment. Without giving too much away... It deals with themes of male sexuality, power, willpower as well, the power to restrain oneself, the personal responsibility to do that. And also he writes, I think, so viscerally about the sense of fear that you have when you're in a position of not having power. He does all those things, and when you hear him read it, it's all the more powerful. I mean, this is vintage Kutzia, and this is Kutzia showing that 30, 40 years after he was writing these award-winning novels, he's still at the top of his game. The sign on the gate says, Chien méchant, and the dog is certainly méchant. Every time she passes by, he hurls himself against the gate howling with desire to get at her and tear her to pieces. He is a big dog, a serious dog, some sort of German shepherd or Rottweiler. She knows little about dog breeds. From his yellow eyes, she feels hatred of the purest kind shining upon her. Afterwards, 
when the house with the chien méchant is behind her, she ruminates on that hatred. She knows it is not personal. Whoever approaches the gate, whoever walks or cycles past, will be at the receiving end of it. But how deeply is the hatred felt? Is it like an electric current switched on when an object is sighted and switched off when the object has receded around the corner? Do spasms of hatred continue to shake the dog when he is alone again? Or does the rage suddenly abate? And does he return to a state of tranquility? She cycles past the house twice every weekday, once on her way to the hospital where she works, once after her shift is over. Because her transits are regular, the dog knows when to expect her. Even before she comes into view, he is at the gate, panting with eagerness. Because the house is on an incline, her progress in the mornings going uphill is slow. In the evenings, thankfully, she can race past. She may know nothing about dog breeds, but she has a good idea of the satisfaction the dog gets from his encounters with her. It is the satisfaction of dominating her, the satisfaction of being feared. Whether he knows she is a female, whether in his eyes a human being must belong to one of two genders corresponding to the two genders of dogs, and therefore whether he feels two kinds of satisfaction at once, the satisfaction of one beast dominating another beast, the satisfaction of a male dominating a female, she has no idea. How does the dog know that despite her mask of indifference, she fears him? The answer, because she gives off the smell of fear, because she cannot hide it. Every time the dog comes hurtling towards her, a chill runs down her back and a pulse of odor leaves her skin, an odor that the dog picks up at once. It sends him into ecstasies of rage, the whiff of fear coming off the being on the other side of the gate. She fears him, and he knows it. Twice a day, he can look forward to it, the passage of this being who is in fear of him, who cannot mask her fear, who gives off the smell of fear as a bitch gives off the smell of sex. She has read Augustine. Augustine says that the clearest evidence that we are fallen creatures lies in the fact that we cannot control the movements of our own bodies. Specifically, a man is unable to control the motions of his virile member. That member behaves as if possessed of a will of its own. Perhaps it even behaves as if possessed by an alien will. She thinks of Augustine as she reaches the foot of the hill on which the house sits, the house with the dog. Will she be able to control herself this time? 
Will she have the willpower necessary to save herself from giving off the humiliating smell of fear? And each time she hears the growl deep in the dog's throat that might equally be a growl of rage or of lust, each time she feels the thud of his body against the gate, she receives her answer, not today. The sheer meshan is enclosed in a garden in which nothing grows but weeds. One day, she gets off her bicycle, leans it against the wall of the house, knocks at the door, waits and waits, while a few meters from her, the dog backs away and then hurls himself at the fence. It is eight in the morning, not a usual time for people to come knocking at one's door. Nonetheless, at last, the door opens a crack. In the dim light, she discerns a face, the face of an old woman with gaunt features and slack gray hair. Good morning, she says in her not bad French. May I speak to you for a moment? The door opens wider. She steps inside into a sparsely furnished room where at this moment an old man in a red cardigan sits at table with a bowl before him. She greets him. He nods but does not rise. I am sorry to trouble you so early in the morning, she says. I cycle past your home twice a day and each time, no doubt you have heard it, your dog is waiting to greet me. There is silence. This has been going on for some months. I wonder whether the time has not come for a change. Would you be prepared to introduce me to your dog so that he can familiarize himself with me, so that he can be shown I am not an enemy, that I mean no harm? The couple exchange glances. The air in the room is still, as if no window has been opened in years. It is a good dog, says the woman. Un chien de garde, a guard dog. By which he understands that there will be no introduction, no familiarization with the chien de garde. That because it suits this woman to treat her as an enemy, she will continue to be an enemy. Each time I pass your house, your dog goes into a state of fury, she says. I have no doubt that he sees it as his duty to hate me, but I am shocked by his hatred of me, shocked and terrified. Each time I pass by your home is a humiliating experience. It is humiliating to be so terrified, to be unable to resist it, to be unable to put a stop to the fear. The couple stare at her stonily. This is a public way, she says. I have a right on a public way not to be terrified, not to be humiliated. You have it in your power to correct this. It is our road, says the woman. We did not invite you here. You can take another road. The man speaks for the first time. Who are you? 
by what right do you come and tell us how to conduct ourselves? She is about to give her reply, but he is not interested. Go, he says. Go, go, go. The cuff of the woolen cardigan he wears is unraveling. As he waves his hand to dismiss her, it trails in the bowl of coffee. She thinks of pointing this out to him, but then does not. Without a word, she retreats. The door closes behind her. The dog hurls himself at the fence. One day, says the dog, this fence will give way. One day, says the dog, I will tear you to pieces. As calmly as she can, though she is trembling, though she can feel waves of fear pulsing from her body into the air, she faces the dog and speaks using human words. Curse you to hell, she says. Then she mounts her bicycle and sets off up the hill. That's it for this week. You can hear more from Kotsia, Alec and me in our special Cartagena episode. You can find that in our back catalogue or at ft.com slash everything else. Kotsia's short story collection, Seven Moral Tales, will be published later this year and Peter Carey's novel, A Long Way From Home, is out now and I can highly recommend it. In our next episode, I'll be speaking to two of the FT's TV writers, India Ross and Harriet Fitchlittle, about whether the so-called golden age of TV has come to an end and what the future of streaming looks like. I'll also be speaking to Joy Press, the author of a new book, Stealing the Show, How Women Are Revolutionising Television. You can subscribe on any podcast app or listen online at ft.com slash everything else. Please do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please visit and like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast, or drop us an email at everythingelse at ft.com. This podcast is produced by Chika Ayres, I've been Griselda Murray-Brown, and our music is composed and produced by Fatim. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.